0: Good evening, uh, good morning, wherever you are. This is uh, Thomas Steininger. Steininger, I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our global webcast for consciousness and evolution. Today with us is Joe Brewer. Joe, uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here.
0: It's great to have you here uh, live uh, from Costa Rica. Joe Brewer is a complexity researcher a cognitive scientist, evangelist for the field of culture design. And uh, you also have background in physics, in mathematics, philosophy, atmospheric science, complexity research, and cognitive linguistics. And you are co-founder of the Cultural Evolution Society, a global scientific community dedicated to the study of cultural evolution. Joe, you just... Uh, working on a workshop uh, that you call Managing the Planetary Collapse. And if I may say so, uh, both the reality of the planetary collapse, but also our human capacity to respond seems to be part of the focus of your work. Um, I would like to start and ask you uh, the planetary collapse. Uh, Of course, uh, many people talk about it. From your perspective, uh, what is it? Uh, Is the planetary collapse, is it real? Is it just kind of a myth? Is it something uh, that is maybe completely underestimated? Uh, What's the the truth about the planetary collapse?
1: The truth about the planetary collapse is that uh, it is very well studied and empirically supported with a huge body of converging evidence. So it is definitely real and happening. And because uh, it's such a scary and dangerous idea, many people project it into the future in their imaginations. Mm -hmm. When in reality, it has been happening for quite some time, and we are right in the middle of it. And just to uh, give one little flavor of this, if you look at the rise of human population in the last 100 years, that has grown exponentially from about half a billion people at the year 1900 to more than 7 billion people about a decade ago. During this time of expansion for the human population, there has been an expansion of the rate for extinction for non-human species, so different kinds of plants and animals that are going extinct that is rising at an exponential rate and has been for decades And you can directly connect the human takeover and use of landscapes to the loss of this biodiversity that has been happening for decades. So this is one piece of the process of, in this case, collapse of biodiversity for Mm. the species of life on Earth that has been happening for roughly one century. Mm. And it's well on its way and happening.
0: In an interview that you gave to the Cosmos Channel, the Cosmos Live, the webcast of the Cosmos Channel, I heard you saying something that I found very interesting because it kind of uh, is uh, different than how we usually think about the global collapse. You made the point that usually we think about the global collapse as being something that is a dramatic one-time event. You say it, the collapse is a long time and we are already in the middle of it. And you talked about the collapse of uh, antique societies like the Roman society. And it's, I think you made the point that the Roman society, the, the process of collapsing of the Roman society took something like 300 years. If you just uh, um, want to say more about it, because I think that's a unique perspective to think about it. It's not just uh, this the climate breakdown that happens where the, uh, New York is flooded or something else. It's something that's a slow motion process that maybe we are already in the middle of.
1: Yeah, I would say it even more like this, that uh, there are different timescales of activities and they're all happening at the same time. So if you want to go to the very large scale and think of something like plate tectonics, that uh, the uh, collision between North and South America began about 6 million years ago and it has changed the ocean circulation of the planet in a way that created the ice ages that come and go in pulses between the last 2 million and 4 million years, that there's this very slow process of very large-scale planetary change. And if you zoom in to smaller and smaller timescales, you see something like 10,000 years ago, uh, humans began to develop agriculture and permanent human settlements. Mm -hmm. And this was at the end of one of these ice ages. So it's connected to plate tectonics. It's connected to something on timescales that are millions of years long. But agriculture and the rise of complex societies is something that occurred on a timescale of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at something like the Roman Empire, which lasted for a period that is on that thousand-year timescale, that its collapse took something like 200 to 300 years. In a series of uh, loss of social complexity, some of the complexity comes back, then it's lost again, then some comes back, then it's lost again through this cycle of degradation, this cycle of decline lasting for 300 years, that it's a very complex unfolding process. And that was at a regional scale, you know, roughly the Mediterranean into the southern half of Europe. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about planetary scale, the different layers of activity span a much larger amount of timescales. So we have some things like prices on the stock exchange that are literally happening in milliseconds, less than a second. Connecting to something like peak oil, the overconsumption of extractable oil reserves as it relates to energy production. And then you have something like a 20 to 30 year timescale to produce a power plant Mm -hmm. and maybe a 40 year timescale for running and managing one. So you have this timescale of financial signals to energy production spanning between milliseconds and decades. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So when you look in this way across different timescales, the reason that planetary collapse is so difficult to perceive and understand is because it's happening at all of these timescales simultaneously. But at each time scale there are different activities unfolding. So the complexity is overwhelming for the human mind.
0: So what are you anticipating, let's say, for the next uh, 50 years? or What are we in the midst in, in what you think is really... Uh, empirically based uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, a prediction that is not just a fantasy but uh, that basically uh, we really can be quite certain that something like this will happen.
1: Let me start with something that may seem abstract but is very useful Mm -hmm. and that is to think about the changes in terms of what is becoming unstable. If we analyze patterns in the world and ask what makes a pattern stable, and then what are the changes and the conditions around the pattern that make it become unstable. Mm -hmm. When we think in this way, we can start to predict what the future will not look like, meaning that there are types of persistence that we can say are not part of the future. One kind of persistence is having a stable, long-term climate at the level of a coastline, or a river system. In the last 10,000 years, the major innovation for humans was the ability to have permanent settlements to create cities that are connected to stable river systems, connected to stable weather patterns, Uh so that they could produce food for long periods of time. What we can see with climate change is that those patterns, the pattern of rain, drought, of flows of rivers, of the the level of seas, you know, at the coastlines and where they're positioned, that those things that were stable are no longer stable. And as they become unstable, what we can see is that the ability to plan for more than five years up to 30 or 40 years, like how should we grow our food? Where should our farms be located? You know, where should we produce our energy? these kinds of questions, they no longer have the security of being based in a stable pattern. Mm -hmm. So when we start at this, that stability has gone away, then we can say, what is likely to change? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, with all of the research that's been done, we don't just say that they're no longer stable, but we say that they're uh, changing in a way that is accelerating so that with time, the change becomes more intense and more rapid. And this is where we look at the mathematics of exponential change. Mm-hmm. So what we can see right now is that the pattern of instability is a pattern of acceleration. So it's not only that things are changing on the timescale of years to decades, but that it's happening more quickly with each passing year. So what we can see from the... Uh, the modeling of the Earth system, the mathematical models that take empirical measurements and then create projections of the future, what we can see is that this pattern of acceleration is the dominant pattern. So in the next 30 to 50 years, several things are going to converge. One thing that will converge is that the human population is already too large. It became too large during a unique time in history when we had access to a reserve of ancient sunlight stored in fossil fuels, and in particular in oil, which is a stable, liquid, high-density energy source, and that during the last 50 years, in some ways 150 years, but really the acceleration over the last 50 years has driven us to a point of rapidly using up all of the cheap, and available oil. If you look just in uh, Canada, in the Alberta tar sands, where you can see that people are trying to get very expensive, environmentally damaging, um, intensive labor types of oil. Now, tar sands are not a first choice for getting oil. So there is a huge investment in something that is such a lousy source of, of oil that tells you that the really easy reserves are already being overused. They wouldn't be spending the money and the time on the tar sands in Canada if they could just go to Pennsylvania or Texas or some other place like Saudi Arabia and get these easy reserves of oil. So what we can see from this is that our food system depends on oil, our energy system depends on oil, The plastics that we use for hundreds of thousands of of, uh, products in our global economy depend on oil in one way or another and oil is becoming unavailable and it's becoming unavailable economically while at the same time we're overusing our freshwater supplies. We're depleting top soils so that the land is becoming less productive with each passing year. Some estimates suggest that We will no longer have crop yields the way they are now, 50 to 70 years from now. And that's if we had the oil to keep running a fossil fuel-based industrial food production system. You can go on and on looking at trends like this, and what you'll see is that we are on a collision course with a decline in human population, a decline in productivity by a number of economic measures. And all of it is happening through this process of acceleration and instability, which makes it more and more difficult to understand and more and more difficult to manage. So we're in this crisis of multiple kinds. And something that I focus on in my work, and that is a theme of the workshop, is the question of how to manage complexity. How does the human mind deal with something so complex that it's overwhelming intellectually, but at the same time, it's overwhelming emotionally. Mm-hmm. So to try to think about and deal with this is really, really difficult work that requires special kinds of preparation. Uh, uh, f-
0: fantastic, because that's exactly where I uh, would like to go next, because you're talking about managing uh, 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 this catastrophe. And that sounds a little kind of uh, strange. Uh, uh, how, how can you really uh, manage our planetary collapse? Uh, well, what are we talking about and how do you kind of envision this? Well, what, you, what do you mean by that, to manage our collapse?
1: For one thing, uh, the word manage is a provocation because in some ways... We cannot manage this collapse. And so we have to learn how to manage our own emotions in dealing with something that is unmanageable. Mm -hmm. So we have to figure out what we can manage in the midst of some things that we cannot manage. Mm -hmm. And there is a kind of mindfulness meditation and emotional and social skill that is involved in managing the unmanageable. Mm-hmm. And in that way, there's something of a paradox, mm-hmm. an unresolved tension, which is an essential piece of this. But at the same time, there are some things we can manage, but then most of us were not taught how to manage. Mm-hmm. I, I, I,
0: say- I, 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 I really find this a very uh, 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 fanta- in- interesting point, because... Y- you were mentioning it, the overcomplexity, and you we really put it to manage managed overcomplexity, and I think it becomes very obvious that uh, just the fact that something is overcomplex, and I think just a little data that you put out uh, is overwhelming enough to uh, to remind us the overcomplexity that we are in. Also, just the overcomplexity that we are one world now; we are not just a, a regional culture somewhere in the middle of Europe or in Central America or wherever. We are one global system in a very difficult situation with a system in system and system in system, system. So all that is uh, daunting. How yes. do we uh, as a species and as an individual respond? And it seems that this is something that you're thinking about.
1: Yes, and I'll start with the research of a psychologist. In Germany named Dietrich Dorner who uh, studies this exact question. He has a wonderful book called The Logic of Failure Mm -hmm. and what he studies as a psychologist is he studies how do people make decisions when they're dealing with complexity Mm -hmm. and he's done his research by having a computer model where he has a person sit in front of the computer and make decisions about a, a simulated village where the person who is uh, in the experiment, meaning the person running the computer simulation, can ask questions about what happens next. So if they change the number of cows that are on the pasture, which has you know, indirect effects in other parts of the village, they can ask questions about what is happening what he observed through a series of very clever experiments was that catastrophic errors in decisions would arise when people stop asking questions. So the behavior that he observed was the behavior of asking questions. Mm -hmm. What this relates to is whether or not the person has a static representation of what the environment is or whether they are open to changing what their mental representation of the situation is. So a key part of managing complexity is to remain in a mode of inquiry and to resist having a static mental model. Mm -hmm. So part of the way to manage complexity is to keep the people who have to manage the complexity in a mode of inquiry, to keep them asking questions, to keep them learning, to keep them agile and open-minded, curious and inquisitive, Mm -hmm. humble and not overconfident. Mm -hmm. You can see that there are a set of psychological capacities that can be managed or that uh, from an education point of view, uh, you could promote learning that creates this mindset and this kind of activity. Mm -hmm. part of the way that we manage complexity is to have a perspective and an orientation toward the real world that keeps us agile open-minded and asking questions
0: Mm -hmm. i i really like that because when you look at our world situation part of what's happening right now and uh you can look at the situation in Europe uh, with, the, uh, with the far right. You can look at the Trump situation in the U.S. You can look India, Modi, uh, uh, Indian nationalism. All this part of it is panic, uh, panic to over complexity, I would say. And it doesn't matter if this panic has a kind of simplistic populist response on the far on the left, on the far right, or in the middle. It's basically exactly what you're describing. I can understand on an individual level, okay, relax, maybe meditate, uh, uh, take a time or if you want an English answer, drink a cup of tea, uh, whatever. Uh, but we are not just talking about our individual responses. We are talking, how can we also respond as a community? How, how can we respond as a world community or as a community of world communities? Uh, so we are in this situation. There are things happening like climate change. there's things happening on, on the financial market. There are things are uh, on and on, uh, where we just all don't know the answers. Uh, we don't know the answers. The politicians don't know the answers. Also, the scientists don't know the answers. There's a lot of reason to panic. And uh, w- what you are describing uh, uh, is also because you're you're putting this in the framework of collapse. Okay, so we, okay, the collapse is already done. Then. Uh, you, we know how people how we respond when basically we are think things are failing anyway let's let's go party or whatever or let's make a violent revolution uh, so as I understand you uh managing this collapse is exactly how to be able uh to find uh, uh wise solutions together in this very difficult, very challenging situations, that we are not only confronted as an individual, but we are confronted on a world scale.
1: Yes, absolutely. And um, one of the things about accepting collapse and accepting that it is happening is that this relates to a very important topic, uh-huh. which is the topic of grief. How do we handle grief and trauma? and one of the things that has been learned from the study of grief is that there's an early stage in the grieving process when a person is overwhelmed emotionally and they become confused, angry, frightened. They may panic. They may uh, withdraw into a distraction or some kind of a delusion where they don't accept reality. Mm But then gradually, if they continue in the grieving process, they come to a place of acceptance. Mm -hmm. And in this place of acceptance, they begin to change how they relate emotionally to their own story. So if I'm grieving about the loss of my mother, I begin to accept that I'm a person whose mother is dead. I'm a person who lives after my mother is no longer around my acceptance relates to how i feel about myself as i begin to accept the new relationship i'm able to act upon the world in a realistic way Uh so part of accepting collapse is realizing that there are some things that we cannot change but that if we can be honest with ourselves about what is happening then we can have an authentic relationship with ourselves. And this makes it possible to have an authentic relationship with the world. Uh From this place, managing the collapse becomes possible. Uh Before we get to this place, it is not possible because we are not relating to the world or to ourselves in an authentic way.
0: So basically, what you are saying is stop denying, uh, stop denying that this is the situation we're in, and uh, have the the strength, also the soul strength, to allow, have a human response to what's going on, because it is something that is very painful on a deep soul level for all of us. I, I find it very surprising. Uh, 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 I found it very surprising when I read this that uh, your work is related to grief, but as you are explaining it right now, it, it starts to make sense how just uh, facing the reality and facing also the, the starkness of it and uh, my net necessity to, uh, to respond as a human being is uh, part of what allows us to respond.
1: Yes, and what's beautiful about this is that it's very human. It reminds us that as human beings, we have bodies, our bodies have emotions, our emotions shape our values, our values shape our behaviors.
0: Mm-hmm. and all
1: of this is connected. that the way we respond to the planetary situation begins with the way we relate to our own body. And then our body becomes the uh, the way that we navigate the situation. Uh-huh. We, If we take care of our own body, uh-huh. then we can be present and we can respond intelligently to our environment. Uh-huh. And this is the foundation for dealing with the complexity of the world.
0: If I may interrupt you here again, because I again find this very interesting and very surprising, because well, uh, we started with complexity. We started with the complexity of the of the world, of the finance system, the climate situation, go on, and on all this complexity. Uh, in some way, we only can hold with our mind. We are only with our mind capable of being aware that something like a world finance system exists. Uh, This being the case, you say, uh, as I hear you, yes, but the answer is in the body. First, or at least the answer is in the body. Uh, That seems to be a surprising response, uh, a a surprising idea. Can you say more about this? Because it seems kind of counterintuitive. I I would more go, hey, we have to hold this. You have to understand this. We have to think about this. We we have to, whatever, educate ourselves. uh, which I guess is also part of how you see this, but uh, where you go is somewhere different. You, see, you go to our uh, body response to all of this. Can you say more about that?:
1: Yes, uh, The biggest uh, foundational insight from the study of the human mind mm-hmm. is that the human mind is a process of the body. The mind and body are not separate from each other. Mm-hmm. In the cognitive sciences, this is called embodiment. Embodiment means that the mind that you have is a dynamic relationship between your brain, your body, and your environment. And the brain, the body, and the environment are connected to each other through several feedbacks. One of the biggest philosophical errors in history of humanity was the idea that the mind and body are separate. It's famously articulated by Rene Descartes. The mind and body being separate is a powerful illusion that is not true. And when we study neuroscience, when we study uh, something like body posture and gesturing, uh, when we study non-human communication, like the way that ants use chemical trails to communicate, or the way that a paramecium, or some other single-celled organism is monitoring changes of chemicals in its environment. What we discover is that the body is making sense of its environment, and this is where consciousness comes from. And in humans, there are several levels of complexity to how the mind works, but the mind is fundamentally a bodily process. When we understand this, we see that our ability to have this grand illusion of a financial system or the grand illusion of an economy is grounded in our bodily experience is an amazing insight because what it tells us is that when our financial system is behaving in a way that violates the laws of physics or violates the principles of biology, that we can actually redesign it. We can change how the financial system works so it's related to biology and physics. And then we can have an econ- economics that is based on living systems. Uh-huh. So it's really powerful to realize that our ability to create these mental representations uh-huh. is not constrained to have the mental representation be consistent with how the world works. Mm -hmm. But our ability to create that mental representation is part of how the world works. Mm -hmm. And and when we go to this place, we can begin to correct for the assumptions that gave us the incorrect mental representation Mm -hmm. and start to find the mental representation that relates to the world. But that will not ever happen if we do not develop an authentic relationship to our emotions and our bodies as they relate to the environment.
0: What you seem to say, uh, one simple uh, uh, way to also talk to this is uh, what you're looking for is a human response. And our mental representations of uh, what the complexity of the world is exactly that. It's our mental uh, representation of that. It's not our human response. in in order to not just uh, respond from a kind of cut-off mental analytic perspective that may be a necessary part of this, uh, I have to integrate it with the wholeness of my human existence. And there is no wholeness of my human existence if if I don't include my embodied response to all of this. So part of maybe also a lot of uh, well-meant political responses are basically exactly that, cut off, because they focus on the mental reality of what we are talking about, but in that uh, lose the human dimension, because you cannot hold the human dimension uh, in just the mental sphere. We have to find an integration in who we are, and that includes exactly what, uh, what you seem to describe, our bodily embodied humanness that is part of the has to be part of the response.
1: And then we add to this that the illusion of separation between mind and body Uh is, is exactly the same thing as the illusion of separation between humans and the rest of nature. We have been destroying the environment without knowing it because we have a story of separation that we've been living out in our modern industrial world, and it's based on a fundamental Untruth. The fundamental untruth is this lie that we tell ourselves, the lie that humans are separate from nature. But what is the ecological crisis? It is a poorly managed relationship between humans and the rest of nature. Mm -hmm. So the way that we correct that relationship is to first experience ourselves as bodily existence. One thing about your bodily existence is your body needs food, it needs water, it needs energy, it needs nutrition. All of these things are shared by every other living thing on earth. But now we add unique things to humans. Humans have a special kind of social need. We need to be part of social groups. We need to have an identity that is connected to a group of other people we need to have a shared language and way of communicating to connect emotionally in a complete way with other human beings. Mm -hmm. This is partially related to other non-human animals, but some of it is unique to humans. And as we get into this relationship between humans and the rest of nature, as it relates to humans with the rest of humans, Mm -hmm. what we find is that how we relate to each other, how you and I in this conversation can relate to each other where as I talk to you, you have an emotional response to what I'm saying, which gives you a feeling about how you relate to me as a person. It also gives you a feeling about how you relate to being human. Mm-hmm. So that the healing that is needed for us to, restore planetary health is the healing that we experience between ourselves and the rest of humanity. The way we have that relationship with the rest of humanity is to recognize that humanity is part of nature and humanity responds to our social interaction from one human being to another.
0: Mm-hmm. But do I <laughs> understand you right, sorry to interrupt you, I uh, understand you right that you seem to again make the point uh, that uh, this non separation from each other as humans mm-hmm. and uh, our non separation from us and the rest of uh, the universe, the, uh, or the rest of the Earth, uh, if I just hold this as a mental idea, uh, uh, I still hold uh, the separation. There's something where the separation is more than the idea of, oh, yes, we are all connected, kind of, it's all one system, it's all. I mean, it's all fine and good, but I think what you're pointing to, that uh, although this is uh, maybe a necessary part of the equation that we have to understand this and we have to uh, find correct ideas about this, that our understanding of non-separation has to go much deeper.
1: Yeah, it needs to go to the level of bodily practice. And this gets at something very important, which is participation. Okay. mean to participate. To participate is to be involved in something larger than yourself, that you have agency. Mm-hmm. So as you are, when you are participating, you are able to make decisions, to take actions, your body is showing up, your emotions and your motivation are connected, but there's something more than yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to draw on the work of another uh, German philosopher and um, and scientist for this, and that is Andreas Weber. Andreas Weber has a book called, in English it's The Biology of Wonder. I don't know the, the German title, but in The Biology of Wonder, he develops an articulation for how bodies express themselves, and he means bodies for all living things, and how this relates to human consciousness and to ethical behavior. He makes a fundamental observation, which is that the thing that makes something alive is the feeling of being alive. Mm -hmm. Moment to moment, the body feels alive. And there's something innate to the dynamic process of being alive, that when an organism feels alive, it also feels the desire to continue feeling alive mm-hmm. and this is the life impulse to, to be afraid of death and to seek continuing to live mm-hmm. so if you look at that paramecium that is following the chemical gradients to find food why is it motivated to find food because it desires in some fundamental way to continue living and this is a body perception Mm -hmm. The body perception is the desire to continue being alive. For human beings right now, we have a crisis of despair, anxiety, and depression. What that means is we don't feel the purpose and intention of desiring to continue being alive. But if we connect to the body's desire to be alive, we reconnect to purpose and intention in the most powerful way that we possibly can. Mm -hmm. So we need to practice participating with our bodies in the desire to be alive. And the best way to do this is to develop a body-based practice. It could be yoga. It could be gardening. It could be uh, improvisational theater. You know, there are many things that it could be. But at the fundamental level, it's, learning how to relate to the world by participating in our bodies to whatever is happening around us and then practicing this on a daily basis so we can really be motivated and develop the skill in relating to our bodies to have a healthy relationship to the world. I'm mm-hmm.
0: no, I, I very much with you in, in the way you describe this and I, I also... Uh, get an understanding of this participation that uh, that you're talking about and how this participation is an existential embodied participation that uh, needs me as a human being to be fully aware that in the end, as I understand you, I participate in life and to to, to, to really also uh, have an embodied understanding of that that this is the case, that uh, I, we are participating in something much bigger than myself than ourself, which is life itself, and how this is something that uh, we need uh, to uh, 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 respond uh, to this collapse. But um, if I may come back to the beginning of our conversation, I I completely understand and I very much appreciate how you emphasize uh, this, let's call it embodied participation as a practice, of uh, also, let's call it uh, non-duality. How can this equip us uh, with a world crisis that of course, yes, it needs us as full human beings as you're describing it, but it needs also the systemic understanding that holds all of this together because we also created very abstract systems really uh, abstract mathematical systems that are more and more holding all this together. So on one hand, you're asking for a a really come back to our embodied life. On the other hand, we we create an abstract uh, computer system that's more and more in its algorithm running the whole show. Uh, How can we hold these two dimensions together? Because I would say somehow we have to hold both of it in order to find responses.
1: Just as I said that we have to participate with our own bodies at the personal level, the way that we work systemically is to have a collective body that is just as tangible as our physical bodies, which means it's also a physical body. And the physical body that we need to relate to is the landscape, Mm -hmm. the landscape of a watershed, the landscape of a forest the landscape of a mountain range. This gets back to the land ethic of Aldo Leopold, the writings of Wendell Berry, uh, other people in this tradition. And the uh, thing that has been missing for people who try to address the global crisis is the question, how do we organize ourselves to achieve systemic impact? Mm -hmm. And the most powerful way to achieve systemic impact is to organize ourselves at the level of landscapes. To, uh, so to give an example, one of the most powerful forces of destruction in the world right now is industrial agriculture. Industrial agriculture is the way that human beings relate to a landscape where we have a mindset of death and control. We kill off all of these species that we don't want We use pesticides and herbicides and cutting away of forests, things like this, these activities of death. Then we bring in machines and we cultivate exclusively one species, which could be corn or cattle or pigs, whatever it is. We optimize the landscape for that one thing. And as we've done this with now, I think it's 35 or 37% of the available land area of the planet. The main driver of mass extinction is industrial agriculture, chemical runoff that's polluting our waterways and all of the the harms with this. So what does it mean to have a systemic solution? The systemic solution is regenerative agriculture. Regenerative agriculture is a way of relating to the land where we focus on healing the soil. Mm -hmm. We bring in... Multiple species, meaning that we imitate through our system of management. We imitate a complex ecosystem. Mm -hmm. This is the opposite of monoculture in industrial agriculture. We build permaculture practices for things like um, a marshland or a wetland that filters the nutrients so that we don't have any pollution. We grow tiered agroforestry meaning that we have trees and bushes that are helping to both capture carbon and bring it out of the atmosphere and put it back into the ecosystem but also this becomes a place for pollinator uh, pollinating flowers and then pollinating insects and then you increase the complexity of relationships for the living system mm-hmm. and you do this as a way of growing food for human beings but also growing food for all of this non-human life. Mm. When we look at agriculture based on regeneration of ecosystems, then the landscape becomes the way of organizing ourselves. Mm. and We feel that relationship across multiple levels at the same time.
0: Again, I find your answer very interesting and very surprising because uh, I asked you about... um, uh, let's call it world systems, like the world finance system. Uh, let's call it uh, the, the Internet as this algorithm uh, that becomes a, a ruling entity uh, that becomes more and more a dominant part of our global life. And your response to my question about this, let's call it algorithm, algorithmic, global uh, uh, technical system is landscape. And the way I hear you, uh, and correct me if I'm, if, if I'm wrong is landscape, uh, is a living organic reality that in the end, even our finance system lives on. Yes. Uh, that, uh, even if we talk about the globe as a globe, uh, the perspective that you are suggesting here, that the globe is just a landscape of landscape that holds agriculture, and in a permaculture perspective, including our bank system and whatever uh, we are talking about, including Google, Twitter, and uh, w- w- whatever, we, uh, the perspective is a radical different perspective if I look through the lens of seeing this as a living organic landscape that we are inhabiting, uh, that we are not just managing from a technical point of view. And from this perspective, Also, different uh, responses and answers show up, uh, even if you talk about the gold bank system. Do I understand you right in this way?
1: You understand me exactly right. It is exactly right. One thing that you'll notice is our financial system is pathological because the way that we account for value and exchange violates the the biology and ecology of landscapes. So the solution for the financial system is to correct those signals. And you do this with accounting and measurement. If you use an uh, an accounting system like gross domestic product, then you don't get back to living systems. If you use an accounting system like the way an ecologist does it, like let's take a food web where you have different predators and different prey like the wolf that eats the the rabbit and the rabbit eats the grass and you can see this flow of energy and nutrition, you have a way of measuring and a way of monitoring the value exchange as what ecologists call a trophic flow. Trophic flow is energy and nutrition between the organisms. If our financial system measured trophic flow, then our financial system would be integrated with living landscapes. So the correction to the financial system is to bring measurements of ecology into finance. Change the accounting and the value measurement and the monitoring so that it is ecological, and I mean literally, that you use ecological measurements as your financial measurements. When you do this, then your banking system functions literally as a living system. It is the value exchanges and trophic flow, the flow of energy and nutrients for human societies as part of ecosystems, which is exactly what we need.
0: So we started with uh, the collapse of, uh, uh, of our global ecosystem, uh, the collapse uh, uh, of Earth as, as such. Uh, we went to grief uh, uh, we went to our embodied response to that. And somehow the perspective uh, that you are unfolding here seems to be an ecological perspective uh, that our permaculture, I think, is a very nice and beautiful uh, word for because it, it kind of shows this different way how how we can see all of it, including the most abstract systems, as part of a permaculture of, uh, of life, because in the, in, the, in the end, even the abstract systems is growing out of uh, the life of this Earth, as we are saying. To kind of, on one hand, understand this, because in one way our conversation is also about the understanding of this, but a, on the other hand, it is also the uh, experience in this, this is where Andreas Weber's perspective comes in, uh, that uh, we, we, we have to also have a feeling response, an embodied feeling response to the reality. Is this what you're calling the capacity uh, or the vision of managing the collapse?
1: Yes, we're managing collapse the way that you manage the composting of food from your kitchen. So we currently have a global system that is dying, and it's based on a logic of death. So it's quite obvious and natural that it would die. What we need to do is compost this system meaning we need to convert its death into new life. So part of managing collapse, and notice how I said earlier that once I accept the collapse is happening, I find a new source of participation and empowerment. My relationship changes. Now my relationship changes from how do I avoid collapse? I'm afraid, I'm scared, I'm angry. And now I'm in a place of, Well, collapse is natural, and it's happening, and I want to support and promote life. So how do I take action to support and promote life from this place of accepting death? And now I'm in a mature grieving stage. Now I can participate in regenerating landscapes, which is exactly what humanity needs to do to manage collapse, to get to a place of planetary health at some time in the future.
0: Joe, uh, uh, thank you very much for uh, this whole journey that we went through in this 45 minutes. And uh, of course, we just touched on some things. So if people who are hearing you want to uh, kind of learn more about your work, where should they go?
1: They should go to the website for the Center of Applied Cultural Evolution, which is culturalevolutioncenter.org. And from there, they can sign up for newsletters. They could attend one of the workshops. They could contact me directly. And also, I'm easy to find on Facebook and LinkedIn and other places. I, I make myself easy to find on the Internet.
0: Joe, thank you very much. Uh, it was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I wish you a great day in Costa Rica and uh, a good night here in Frankfurt. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Thomas.